Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 239, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This episode, one school is taking the high price of eggs and turning it into a lesson on economics and business management. Stay with us. podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. Our guest this episode wants you to reconsider the three R's. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, chief academic officer, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I'm winded, man. Winded? Like you literally like came running in, huh? I'm trying to tell you, doing 5011 things, but also looking at, well, man, 2023 is soaring like a train. It is. Um, you say winded. Are you still hitting the, um, what was the old bike you got? <laughs> what was it called? Uh, the Peloton. You still a do that? Peloton. Well, you know, it's collecting a little dust right now. Oh, okay. Well, I had, a, I had a treadmill once, and it was always good for hanging clothes on. I don't know if that's how the Peloton works. I don't hang anything on it, but <laughs> <laughs> it could be a rack for me now that I think about it. Right. That's <laughs> too funny. All right. Well, that's all good. I won't ask any more questions about that. Hey, are you? have you been purchasing any eggs lately? <laughs> yes. Even though my baby is a freshman in college... He still comes home regularly to eat. And in one sitting, he will eat six scrambled eggs. Okay, so that's what, like four bucks and for, for six scrambled well, eggs? Listen, I've told him, buddy, you're going to get some rice, potatoes, some toast, a couple of other things <laughs> to go with these eggs. You're not getting six eggs. Can't run through them like this because they are high right now. Right. Apparently, they peaked in December. They're starting to come down a little bit as we're in February now. Um, but yeah, I think everybody's felt the impact. And it's not like they're, it's not steak, right? Like we're not, we're not uh, having I mean, a drop. But, it's, but if you could get a dozen of eggs for $2 and now it's 12 bucks, that's a problem. So the other day I bought um, organic eggs cheaper than like the regular eggs like because because I think, that? well, I think what's happening is this avian flu outbreak is hitting certain suppliers harder than others, right? Uh, so if you're like maybe a smaller operator, you didn't have to kill, you know, 90% or 100% of your flock to get rid of the flu. But maybe if you're a smaller supplier and you just really focus on organic eggs, you still kind of maintained your prices or maybe just inched up a little bit. Or I'll give you another example. Um, you know this, my, my family, my brother has a, a cheesecake company and they have it takes lots of eggs to, in their cheesecake yes. recipe. And I said, I was like, Chris, are you getting killed with these egg prices? He's like, not really, because I'm not getting my eggs from the grocery store. It's coming through a different supply. And I guess ah. their prices hadn't been increased. But that's all besides the point. Like, what The reason I bring this up is because what a cool project that's taking place over in California, all right? So teachers and students at the Madera South High School in California have turned basically the price of eggs into an after-school agricultural project that has lessons in biology, economics, and business management. So you ready to hear about this? 
Yes, let me hear it. Okay, so Edweek reports that these students started tending to a flock of chickens a little more than a year ago. And I didn't know this, but it takes about six months for like a new batch of chickens to start producing eggs. So <laughs> they started producing eggs and that's, you know, shortly after these prices started going up. And now they're selling eggs to the community and they're undercutting the grocery stores. Cause as I was saying, like they aren't having to kill their flock. Um, and so they increased their prices from three to $5, but that's still way less than the $8, a dozen eggs, uh, the cost of eggs in uh, California. So I, you've probably seen this happen dozens of times, but just every now and then, like you have a lesson or you were doing something in school that just aligns perfectly mm-hmm. with what's happening in the real world. And, and I think this is really neat, this opportunity that they have. I think it's pretty cool. I'm just still stuck on the price of eggs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'd have a few um, questions. I'd like really want to understand what was their purpose behind it? Well, okay. So have you, I know you're from California. I was about to say, have you ever been? True. Okay. So I didn't know this about California until I actually went there and saw it with my own eyes, but that Fresno area, which they're near and, and kind of Fresno, I think it's kind of all the way down to like North of Los Angeles. It's like the country's breadbasket. It is a major agricultural area. And like, mm-hmm. if, if you've never been to California, I guess for me, I always kind of imagine California, you know, it's Hollywood and San Francisco and Los Angeles and, and San Diego. Thing. I'm from California, but I'm from San Diego. So not anywhere near this area that you're referring to. Right. Well, I, I drove through that area once when we were going to, um, gosh, what national Sequoia National Park. We had to kind of drive up okay. to Fresno. So I was shocked at like the amount of agricultural there. Um, and so this school actually has had this agricultural program and um, they just recently got 30 leghorn chickens and now they're expanding to 15 Rhode Island chickens to their flock and um, they kind of started doing this experiment and but it's more than that they actually like grow oranges at the school and then um, so it's completely embedded in their curriculum right it's just kind of normal I guess in in this part of California to to kind of have this program and you know we have where we live Forest County Agricultural High School where they have kind of like similar ag projects I've never actually been part of that they do Um, and I have um, observed that and the Students pick up skills that they, for a lot of them, actually, um, skills they bring into the school um, already, you know, living in that type of environment. And so I guess what I'm, when I say I want to know the purpose, I imagine that a lot of these students are going to be able to take these skills right out into the workforce. Yeah, I think so. And I think what probably looked originally as like, all right, this is an agricultural project. Like, let's learn how to, you know, handle chickens and and lay Mm -hmm. eggs is now an economics project and now a project about like running a business and like selling your eggs to the community. And so they're, they're apparently discussing like, do we buy more chickens, but then the price might come down and will we continue to have the demand if the price starts to fall at the grocery store? Will people still want to come to our school and buy our eggs? And like, what an experiment. Yes. I say they would want to simply because they're supporting their local school, um, depending on how they, you know, the type of PR that they have to not only advertise the selling of the eggs, but the development of the skills. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's really awesome. Um, When I think about not just farming um, and being able to resell the eggs, but also think about the areas where we talk about um, those areas that have like food shortages where there's just um, small grocery stores. So the prices are really high and they kind of encourage those families to, you know, develop gardens and things in their backyard. These kids literally can help local families um, save money 
by developing these skills and then going home and, and replicating the practices. Right. And I remember when I was in high school, we had like a, a guy from Pricewaterhouse come in and it was an economics class. And and we basically did a similar project, but not in real life. Like we we talked about pens. He's like, all right, I won't imagine if you have a pen company and are you going to sell a Montblanc pen for a hundred bucks? Or are you going to sell a Bic pen mm-hmm. for a few cents? And like, we all kind of had to do this like simulation with pens this is real life, right? Like, so apparently the students just voted, yes, they're going to go get 30 more hens. And and here's a quote from the story. Even if egg prices return to pre-search levels, they believe improved marketing and options like drive up service can help sustain demand, which is basically what you were just saying. Yes. I love it. I, I, think I love the buy-in. I love the ownership that the students have now taken, given their opinion on, you know, keeping the project going and how they'll change the project. So it's even more than uh, just being able to help their community. You hit the nail on the head. They're learning <laughs> one-on-one economics. Right. And, and even if they go out and get 30 more hens and they have more supply than demand, they're either going to a drop their prices to create, you know, and hopefully attract more people, um, or b it might be a failure, which is okay, right? Like, what a learning and it opportunity is because they can. I was getting just getting ready to say they can still learn from that by conducting research on what happens when your idea or project fails. How do you adjust? Let's study some different, um, you know, options and then relaunch because that is real business. You know, so I, I love it when anything becomes real for students and it's not just a simulation like I kind of had when I was in high school. Um, similar story, my my high school son who is in government class right now, he like started the semester in government class when Kevin McCarthy was like having to try and try again to become a speaker of the house. 15 times. Right. <laughs> and, and I think his teacher was so excited, not for his struggles. Wasn't that historical? Yeah, it was historical, right? And it, it was something real that the kids could watch and discuss in real time. And I feel like this is a similar situation. So kudos to any teacher that kind of sees an opportunity like that and, and cashes in well, on it. Isn't that the whole purpose, though, is to have real life experiences and to be able to make connections so that they can apply it when they grow up? Right. I love it. No doubt. All right, Christina, are you ready for today's bright idea? I am. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is going to explain why we need to rethink the way we teach students and that we need to reconsider maybe the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, and possibly replace those with some new R's. Jose Antonio Bowen has been a uh, leading innovator for change for over 35 years at universities like Stanford, Georgetown, and the University of Southampton, UK. He's also served as dean at Miami University and SMU. He's the author of the hit Teaching Naked, and his latest book is Teaching Change, How to Develop Independent Thinkers Using Relationships, Resilience, and Reflection. Jose, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thanks for having me. We're going to dive into these three R's that, that you suggest, Relationships, Resilience, and Reflection, in a little bit. But at first, I think it's important to establish kind of like where you are in terms of your thoughts on teaching and and how things are quickly changing in this world. I, kn- I know you like to talk about change a lot. Um, and I've listened to a speech from you and you even used a car key as an example. Let's kind of dive into that a little bit. Yes. Well, so that was, that's a real example. So my, my daughter, you know, moved and said, I'm going to park the car here while you drive it every once in a while. And she had one of these new cars that doesn't have a car key. It has a, a fob. And so I kept using it like a car key. You know, I'd take it out of my pocket walk into the car and then go, well, now where do I put it? You know, there, this is one of those early ones. So there, there was no slot. Uh, there's, they've now figured out they have a, a plastic slot. That's not a place where you put your key, but it's a place that you put this fob for old people. Uh, and so 
uh, you know, real, it took me, I'm embarrassed to say, you know, year <laughs> to figure out, actually, it's not a key. It's a personal identity device and I can stay in my pocket and I can just push the button. Uh, and so the, the point is, is that when you give somebody new content or new technology, right? We've all seen this, like the, the, the university buys a new software system that does things in a new way. And it's like, oh, but it doesn't do the old thing. I want it. You know, it's like, I used to click here. It's like, oh, no, it doesn't work. That It's a whole different way of doing things. And so we continue to try to use new content with our old assumptions. And that's just human nature. And so that was an insight that I had about how I think and work. And I, it's true that we all do that. And so the, the trick for the key fob was to not think of it as a key anymore, but to think, well, it's it's a personal identity device. It's they should have made it a wristband. It's really a very new way of of interacting with the with the car and getting it to go. So with information, we have to do the same thing. We have to think about, you know, if I give students this, what they're going to do is try to put it into the keyhole that they have. Right. Every you know, I use the metaphor of a closet. Right. That everybody brings a closet, and you. It's organized, the, your experiences and your knowledge are organized in a particular way based upon your understanding of the world. And so when you get something new, let's say a new book on pedagogy, well, you don't have any other books on pedagogy, so where do you put it, right? Do I put it with the science books? Do I put it with the, with the discipline? I mean, right, I don't, in the career books, you know, where do I put it? And so over time, if, you, if I give you enough books on pedagogy, you'll eventually have a, an organized section. And so change is hard for people and it's individual because we all bring our own set of stuff. And then the third piece is that the world has now valuing change more than it ever did. The jobs of the future are unknown. Uh, while democracy has always required changing your mind to be a, 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 an important for citizens, boy, has it become scarce. And so the idea that we're preparing people to be agile, nimble thinkers who can change their mind has increased in value, in my view. When I was in school in the in the 80s and 90s dating myself, um, it was all about teaching me and me trying to retain information, right? You know, when was the date of this? And and there, of course, was, you know, we're going to teach you how to be a critical thinker as well. That was in the 90s, you know, something that was bubbling up. But but I guess you're saying that all that's kind of gone out the window. We can find information in our pockets, on our phones. But now what is the role of a teacher? Is that where you're going with this? Yeah. I mean, look, it's not, content is still going to be important. There is stuff you have to know. And human beings don't think in the abstract. We actually think uh, with concrete ideas. So you do need ideas. But but the idea of weed out courses where we're going to see how much you can remember on every midterm every few weeks um, which, by the way, I, I think is is much more common than we'd like to admit. I see it happening all the time. Uh, I have a you know a niece in college who's like, yeah, here's what we're doing, here's what they expect, and it's like, wow, really? You got 700 kids, and you're just trying to you know figure out who can memorize the most. Um, and, and and so when you're doing that, you know, she she doesn't her view of college is that well, it's just like high school. I got to memorize a lot of stuff, and then they test me. Um, you know, and that's not what college should be about. It should be a different kind of learning. And the irony is that we talk about this all the time. We say, oh, no, college is so different from high school. And, you know, I teach critical thinking. And it's like, well, if you're going to teach critical thinking, you actually have to spend time doing it. There was a, stu a study actually at Fresno State uh, in California where um, 
students were, were given a course uh, on critical thinking and it was it was about you know like like um, conspiracy theories and you know aliens landing and various sorts of things and and it was done to science students but they found that unless they actually specific they got into the specifics of here is what this means here's what you think this is about how do you judge this information that a general course on critical thinking even teaching critical thinking generically didn't have the effect they wanted. So, so I'm, I, and all of the data shows us that what we think is happening co- in college by magic is not happening unless we are really paying attention to it, teaching it, and assessing it. Students actually ent- leave college more convinced of the opinions they had in high school than when they entered. Uh, and and that now that does does relate to whether also how many friends they have in college, right? So the thing that actually matters more than courses roommates and friends, right? So if I'm on Facebook all the time talking to my high school friends, guess what? I, I retain that way of looking at the world. But if I make a whole lot of new friends and have a roommate from a different religion or a different country or a different ethnicity, I am much more likely to change my mind about that group and to have more uh, open opinions later in life because I learned something new about that person. So that's why my first R is relationships. Right. And so let's dive into this. And and this is really kind of your advice, I guess, for all educators, whether you're K through 12 or college or whatever. But but your first R again is, is relationships. And and I, listening and reading what you, you have here, you talk about the importance of the fact that like students think in communities. It brought me back. I don't know if you've happened to read. Uh, I think the, the book was uh, Sapiens. Um, and, yes, of course. Yeah. And, and it was great in, in terms of that regard. It was basically saying like our, our species learns and grows and, and uses communities to almost as a protective mechanism, I guess. And, and that kind of is what I was hearing from you a little bit. This is how we learn. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I was, you know, you know, you know, Steve Sloman's The Knowledge Illusion, you know, why we never think alone in this new book, Survival of the Friendliest, right? Um, that, you know, 10,000 years ago, uh, we were in groups. And our survival depended upon the group. You know, we were hunting mammoth. We were, you know, doing a group activity. And so think of loneliness, for example, right? Why do we feel that emotion of loneliness? Well, we feel it because those who didn't feel it and stood around on their own eventually got eaten or, you know, couldn't find enough wild carrots to survive. And so the those of us who we're in the group and, you know, the, the leader says, stand over here with the spear and you stand over there and you run after the, those of us who said, yes, sir. Okay, we'll do that. That sounds like a great plan, even if it was a stupid plan. Those of us who listened to the tallest person survived. So tall people have an advantage that, that people, we were more likely to believe them, to listen to them. They actually make more money. Uh and so we are, you know, we, in college, we're so dependent upon group discussion. We think that, you know, we're going to discuss things and that'll be, you know, great for, for sharing ideas. But what's mostly going on, by the way, especially with adolescents, is that people are, you know, surveying the group. Well, who's talking? Who's smiling? Who do I like? Who do I want to date? Who's on the lacrosse team that I want to be a part of? And that may not be conscious, but that determines who we listen to, and whether we think their data is credible. And of course, there's lots and lots of data that, you know, if somebody in a, in a lab coat with a clipboard tells you to do something, you know, the Stanley Milgram experiments, even tells you to shock this other person, you know, past the danger zone. I mean, in those experiments, you know, 100% of people went to the danger button. 
60% of people went until the subject was, was not responding at all. So we're, we're much more susceptible to the influence of other people based upon external factors like how they're dressed, how tall they are, whether they're good looking. And so what you listen to depends on who you know, who you like. So, right, if you want students to listen to you, they have to like you. They have to have a relationship with you. And right, that seems incredibly sad. It's not my job. I mean, I can hear the, you know, the, the already, but the human nature is such that you know, students will come into your class, they will write down what you say to write down, they will regurgitate what you say to write down, and you will have absolutely zero effect on them six months later. Um, and if you want to get in their heads and you want them to change their mind and to rethink their assumptions, who they have a relationship matters way more than the content. And that's just the way the brain works. That's good stuff. Um, now, the next R is resilience. Um, let's dive into that one a little bit. So resilience is hard and it's also often misunderstood, right? That, you know, there's a lot of, of work on grit, uh, persistence, um, and, and there's no question that, that grit is a good thing. Right, but we have decades now of research on willpower. It was called willpower, then self-control. Uh, we have, you know, mindset is is newer, um, and so all these things, you know, make sense when you have more of these things. Good things happen. The problem is that with most of this research, it's people have not been able to figure out. Well, how do I get you more willpower? How do I get you more self-control? How do I get you more grit? Right, having more grit means you're going to be better at all sorts of stuff. But changing your mindset is hard. There's, a, there's been a little bit better work on, on changing mindset. But, uh, you know, the early experiments on willpower, you know, Ray Baumeister would, you know, have you come into the room and, and if you could smell cookies, you know, and you got a cookie, you did more math problems than if you were smelled cookies, but you were given radishes, right? The famous cookies and radishes experiment. Well, that's great. That tells us that, you know, radish, you know, being disappointed in radishes are bad. But it doesn't tell me how do I help you other than give you cookies. <laughs> so uh, it turns out that resilience, you know, in really recent research is more of a community. It's more about resources, right? So if I'm always hungry, if I've never known stability, I don't have as much resilience, right? I'm not going to be as comfortable with discomfort because I'm hungry, right? Even the early marshmallow experiment. Uh, right, the, the Walter Michel, that, you know, he all those people he tested were, you know, the children of Stanford faculty. They weren't hungry. They could wait for a marshmallow. And when people tried to replicate those tests on poor kids who were hungry, it didn't work. It wasn't predictive. First of all, they didn't wait for the marshmallow. But second, it wasn't as predictive. It was just predictive of how hungry they were. So our approach to resilience needs to be much more about abundance and support and resources and letting you know that I care for you, uh, putting you in a study group. Um, so that, that thinking collectively about resilience and about, re, you know, what, what can I provide students with rather than how can I make them tougher uh, is, is really what we're missing. And so we, I think we're seeing a lot of that in the change in thinking about student support services where it used to be, well, I didn't have this. And why, why does there have to be a math center and a writing center and tutors and all of that to realizing that, in fact, having those resources is going to help students persist um, and do the really hard work that we want them to do. Could you give me like a, a real life example? If I'm a K through 12 teacher and um, I'm hearing you and that resilience is one of these R's and it's important and I need to do it. Um, give me something in practice that I should be doing. So, so for example, giving students choice 
uh, you're giving some agency, right? So we know that motivation uh, you know, starts with salience, right? Is this, is this important for me? Uh, but then it requires competence um, or optimism. So if I have optimism and then I finally have agency, I'm more likely to persist and do math problems. So put the easier problems first and the harder problems at the end, right? If you put problem number five in the middle, that's really hard just because that's the way it kind of worked. And I get stuck on problem five. I'm not going to know how to go on. Right. So, uh, so staging things so that like a video game, right? I, oh, this is easy. I can do this. And then things gradually get harder. That's probably not something new for most people, but choice. So do I have to do the math problems about fashion? I hate fashion. These word problems don't make any sense to me. Giving people uh, more personalized uh, sets of examples and, and a chance to choose, right? So I have two problems today. One is about football or rockets, and the other is about, uh, you know, cooking and gardening or something. And so you, you have a, some choice to choose which set of problems that you do. Uh, and, and here's the order that you should do them in from easier to harder. Uh, so, so thinking about how motivation works, it starts with salience, right? Is this relevant for me? It continues with optimism, right? Am I good at this? And then it also relates to whether I have agency and I'm able to choose and, and make some choices myself. I think you, you said in reference to resilience that the best teacher is a tennis net. Do you, do you want to elaborate? So the tennis net provides immediate feedback that's non-judgmental. Right. So in other words, I don't always need a coach going A plus, B minus, you know, move your feet. Um, if you give me more tennis balls sometimes, again, that's an example of a resource. Just give me more tennis balls. Now I hit the I hit the tennis ball again. Oh, it didn't go over the net. Well, I know that didn't work. I have to fix something. And the first thing I want to do when the tennis ball goes into the net is I want to hit another one. Right. Think about how motivating that is, right? Failure as motivator. I want to hit more tennis balls because that didn't work. Um, let me try again. And so oftentimes we don't, right? That's a hard thing to do, right? Video games are hard things to set up in class, but they work for that reason because video games, right? You don't actually die. It's virtual. You get to try again. So, so ways where failure inspires trying again, rather than, oh, you got a D minus, you're, you're not good at this and you shouldn't be in this class. Um, ways, ways where students can hit tennis balls and just, well, here are some more balls. Here are some more to try. Uh, and the last R is uh, reflection. Really changing your mind requires some metacognition, some some thinking about it. And so we do this with feedback all the time, right? So the other problem with feedback is that we give it to you at the end of class and then students look at the grade and they stuff it into the backpack and they get angry and they walk out the room. So my strategy for for feedback is never put grades on an assignment, right? Put them in the computer and hide them. And then give students five minutes or even 10 minutes at the end of class to reflect on your feedback. So in order to do that, you have to put the feedback that you've spent all those hours writing on the homework, on the, on the problem set, on the paper and say, so here's, the, here's, your, here's my feedback, right? Here's my feedback. Notice non-judgmental. I didn't give you a grade. Here's my feedback. And then some sort of structure. I call it a cognitive wrapper to say, uh, and I give them away for free on teachingnaked.com, the, the template for these. Um, so now I want you to reflect, where do you think you lost points? What could you do better next time? Right? Give students some opportunity to take your feedback, actually read it. Then notice if, 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 I, if I have a grade, I see the grade and I get emotional and then I read your feedback differently. 
Um, so, you know, we tried this in, in opera results. Cause if you, if you didn't, I, you didn't get the part. Oh, why didn't you get the part? Well, cause you hate me. Right. It's like, uh, they always say that it's like, so I say, so look, so the results to the opera auditions are posted outside the door. I want you to t- reflect a moment. Why do you, where could your audition have been better? Well, I, I forgot my lyrics. Ah, since you're actually reflecting and you're thinking about how your, your audition could have been better in a different way because you haven't seen that you didn't get the part. And now you think, well, maybe I should work on my lyrics more before I do the next audition. I've actually got you thinking and taking action. And then when you see the, maybe you're still angry, uh, but you've at least had that moment to reflect. So if we want students to think, we have to provide them moments to reflect. There's just no other way around that. And if I'd probably stopped longer with that car key rather than always having to go someplace in a hurry, I might've said, wait a second. I don't have to take this out of my pocket. Stopping in such a hurry. If if I'm hearing you right, and I'm trying to bring this full circle, you know, you're not saying that reading, writing, writing, and arithmetic aren't important, but you are saying that things are changing so quickly out there in the real world that we need to prepare our students for the unknown, which we even at this moment don't know. So these are the skills that we need to be giving them: relationships, resilience, reflection, and so forth. Is is that right? Well, I think the skills we were always trying to give them was critical thinking, and we weren't we weren't doing as good a job on it as we thought we were. And now critical thinking has become even more important than it ever was, which means we have to teach them process. So in some ways, right, the, the, these three R's are more process. The old three R's were more about content, right, reading, writing, arithmetic, stuff you need to know. And, and relationships, resilience, and reflection are more about what you need to know about yourself so that you can manage your own future change. Because my goal as a teacher is to make myself obsolete so that you don't need me. You can think for yourself on your own. That's my real goal. And so I need to, I need to give you a process. It's, it's not unlike saying, look, I can't come with you to Wimbledon. Here's, here's a bucket of balls, but here's what I need you to, I need you to make sure that when the ball doesn't go over the net, you don't just get mad and hit some more balls, but that you, you think about, could I adjust my footwork? Could I adjust my hand? You know, what should I, here are all the things you might adjust so that now you can now self-regulate yourself when things don't go well at Wimbledon, because I won't be there. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that's not just as a teacher, as a parent, even we, we try the same thing. There's at some point where you let that kid go into the real world. You hope you taught him to make yep, the right yep. decisions. And it's very much the same thing, at least in my mind. Yeah, yeah. That, that, no, it's, it's exactly what we all want as parents. We, we want them to not to say, I don't know what to do. You know, help me. We want them to be able to say, you know, you taught me well. And so I made good, ethical, sound decisions. And I realized I was wrong and I had to go apologize to my friend. And without you telling me, right? Because if I say to you, you have to go apologize to Bob. It's like, well, I will because my parent told me to. But what, what parents really want and what teachers really want is for students to say, you know what? I, I remembered that lesson, and it changes the way that I think about the world. Uh, again, you're listening to Jose Antonio Bowen. The new book is Teaching Change, How to Develop Independent Thinkers Using Relationships, Resilience, and Reflection. And I know you've had all that success uh, with your earlier book, Teaching Naked. Best of luck with this one. People can probably find the new book wherever books are sold, I imagine. Amazon, the usual, Johns Hopkins University Press. Also, and there's, there's actually a discount code on my website at josebowen.com to get 30% off at Johns Hopkins. All right, sir. Well, we appreciate that. Are you ready for today's pop quiz? Sure. Hit me. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Oh, I'd like to say music, but that's probably not. Uh, you, you know, um, 
Uh, for one subject, uh, you know, physics. Physics? Something basic about the world. And for those that don't know, you are an accomplished uh, musician, so that's probably where part of that uh, love for an answer for music probably came from, right? Yeah, I've been a music teacher in my career, and so I do think about that. And I, and I really do think that what I teach students is useful in terms of how to how to learn to love more kinds of things, how to, right? I'm, if I teach you to love jazz, I've taught you how to change your mind in a, in a, in a funny way. Uh, uh, and so I do think that's a Essential, but I do think that uh, we got to start with knowledge about the world. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Uh, well, you know, change and ambiguity. So tolerance for ambiguity, uh, you know, my three R's, of course, uh, teaching change. But I think we, we have plenty of content. We could dial back the content a little bit and teach more process. What does every child deserve? Well, every child deserves teachers that really care about their learning. It turns out that people learn more when they believe the teacher really, really cares. And so caring in your heart is not enough. And it turns out that you don't actually really have to care. Students, it's a perception if students believe that you care. Um, so it's about how do you demonstrate? What are the things that you say? It's that the irony is that, right, this is, this is actually also true about uh, being a good a boss in a multicultural environment, right? Right, supporting equity and racial justice, um, right? It's it's not about what's in your heart; it's about what you do, right? Being an anti-racist is about caring about results, and so telling students that they matter, that you care, that you are available, um, that you believe in their success, um, you know, demonstrating to students that you really care is is fundamental. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Well, I think scale is the biggest challenge. I think the world, well, that's, there are two things. One is scale, that uh, teaching is unlike anything else. We need more teachers than we need doctors, lawyers, architects, right? It's, it's for everybody. Um, but the world is so divided that people are so stuck in their ways that to teach people about change sounds like indoctrination. It's not. In fact, the reason the book has that subtitle is because I want to create independent thinkers, not people who think like me, um, which is what people think happens in college, is that are they going to learn how to think like you, uh, like the way you're, this is the way you're supposed to think. Um, and it's really hard to not do that because we all have our preferences. So really teaching students how to think independently has never been harder. What's the best gift to give an educator? Uh, other than a copy of my book, I'm thinking. Uh, <laughs> no, let's see. Um, you know, really would be time, right? T the same thing we want to give students, time for reflection. Time, You know, teaching is hard work. And the only way to get better at it is to have time to say, well, let me, you know, rethink how I do this. And so, uh, t t you know, time to rethink how am I presenting this? How did this work? Uh, what could I do better next time? Which teacher changed your life? Well, you know, it's funny. So I, you know, everybody, ha I remember teachers uh, in college. I remember M Mrs. Mertens in high school, um, who I did not like at the time. It was the classic story, you know, of the English teacher who made us write those five paragraph essays that I now, of course, despise. Um, but she was the first teacher who had really high standards. And so it's another thing that teachers need to remember that, that both high standards and caring are important. One by themselves is not enough. She had high standards and she believed that I could succeed. Um, and that really mattered. Which book have you read, loved, and want to recommend to our listeners? Uh, so I, I really like um, Robert Sapolsky's Behave. Uh, it is uh, a, a great summary way of thinking about the human 
being. Uh, it's very long, though. Uh, so uh, maybe I should, I should go with Noise, which I've just read, which is the, the new book from Danny Kahneman uh, and, uh, and, and some co-authors, Cass Sunstein and Olivier Sabone, uh, about, we, you know, we talk about bias all the time, but there's also lots of noise in the way we make decisions and the way we think. So uh, let me, I should go with that. Great stuff. Again, uh, you're listening to Jose Antonio Bowen. The new book is Teaching Change, How to Develop Independent Thinkers Using Relationships, Resilience, and Reflection. Sir, we appreciate you joining us on Class Dismissed. Thanks very much. It was great to be here. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.